Would you stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Eumaeus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these three days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe that all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose from that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was shown to them in the breaking of the bread. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Thanks, Lindsay. Good morning, everyone. So we're in the middle of this fantastic series called The Table. We've been exploring the, the way of following Jesus in the practice of hospitality. And this is one of my absolute favorite topics to learn about, to read about, to teach about, to practice. In my graduate studies, I took a course called Creating Lives and Communities of Hospitality. And I think Kevin would uh, agree with me when I say I've never been the same since. Um, that the course, the content changed my life. And I'm getting the sense that the people here, known as Ipsy Free, were feeling the same way because you're learning, you're, you're learning, but you're also leaning into this conversation on the table. We've been receiving connect cards where people are telling us the practical ways that they're stepping up and, and living out this hospitality lesson. We're so excited by how few blessed books we have left. That means you've taken them home. Maybe some of you have been reading them. We know some of you have because we've been having conversations with you about how it's affecting you, how it's changing your mindset, how you're already starting to live this out. And let me let you in on a little secret. It's one of a pastor's favorite things when somebody actually takes what we give them and puts it into practice. It's like James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. So I hope, we're, we're, I hope you will look forward to the discussion we're going to have on this book on the 29th, that you'll join us as we circle up to have a conversation in the lobby and say, okay, let's not just think about it. Let's actually live out the love of Jesus in this way. So in last week's message, Pastor Steve covered the wedding at Cana, and we discovered that Jesus is a lover of parties. And I'm an Enneagram 7, so I love this. I'm like, okay, how can we have fun doing this next thing? And, uh, but Jesus loves this discipline of celebration, and sometimes it is a discipline because life is hard. And, and I've experienced that as well, where it takes intentionality to celebrate things, to set aside a space for feasting, Maybe you remember back to January where Pastor Steve challenged us to choose a word for the year. So my word was joy. And in the past few years, this has actually been a word that Jesus has been cultivating in me, like find the joy in all circumstances. And one of my friends actually gave me a book called I'm in Charge of Celebrations. And so I have started living out this idea that I have a metaphorical pocket full of confetti and I'm just ready to like... That is awesome. That is so awesome. I am celebrating that with you because we don't do that enough and that's the way of Jesus. We see that all over scripture. He celebrates with people. And now this week, we're going to the other end of the spectrum as much as I would like to stay in celebration. Um, This is equally difficult but for different reasons and I invite you to put on your maybe metaphorical walking shoes as we journey with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So we're going to back up in the story a little bit, the story that uh, Lindsay just read for us, to figure out where we've started and where we're heading. So the disciples and Jesus had just endured one of the most traumatic roller coasters of a week. We know it as Holy Week. It started with Palm Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem to fanfare and celebration, but things quickly turned dark. You see, the local pastors and teachers had been threatened by the authority with which Jesus taught. And by all the followers who were devoted to his teaching. I mean, if they're following Jesus, they're not coming to our temple on Sunday. Or... If they're following Jesus and giving to his ministry, what if they don't give to our ministry? They were threatened by Jesus and his authority. And they wanted to overthrow his unofficial kingdom. It didn't look like a kingdom, but it was enough of one that they wanted to put him to death. So we know what transpired. Jesus shares a meal with 12 of his closest friends, and he tries again to prepare them for what's to come. He's been trying to tell them, but they don't understand. How could they? I mean, Jesus spoke in parables all the time. Maybe this was just a parable. Maybe this was just a a metaphor for something. But that night, Jesus goes off to the garden to pray, and it's not just a church prayer. It's a gut-wrenching prayer where he pleads with his father to come up with any other option other than the torture that he is about to endure. He is in such anguish that he's sweating. 
grieving, throwing himself on the ground, dripping blood at the thought of what he is about to endure. If there's any other way, not my will though, but yours be done. And at that moment, one of his dear friends, Judas, comes to the garden and betrays him, handing him over to be arrested. Air over Michigan, I love it so much. So over the next few hours, Jesus' 12 apostles, or maybe 11, we don't know where Judas went off to, his family and the dozens of disciples who were following him, they watch in horror as he is humiliated, beaten, and put to death on a cross. So now it's Sunday morning. I love this, this artistic work of the walk to Emmaus. And a few of the female disciples had gone to the tomb to mourn and honor Jesus. And they had returned with a ludicrous story about an angel and a stone being rolled away and Jesus' body nowhere to be found. No one believed them. They thought they were crazy. Now, for some of the disciples, like Cleopas that we just read about and his unnamed companion, maybe a friend, maybe a wife, it was necessary to return home to get back to regular life or as best they could. At least go through the motions of life while the head swirled with thoughts of the nightmare that they had just endured, while their hearts broke with despair. We had hoped that he would be the one to save us. Let's watch. Now just outside of Jerusalem, a pair of Jesus' followers were leaving the city traveling on a road to a town called Emmaus, and they were sad and confused about everything that had happened. Then Jesus shows up, walking alongside them, but they don't know it's him. Yeah, that's weird. Why couldn't they recognize him? Yeah, it's an odd but really significant image for Luke. They're blind to Jesus for some reason, so Jesus asks them, what are you guys talking about? And they begin to tell him about Jesus, a powerful prophet who they expected would rescue Israel but was instead executed. Some women say he's alive, which is crazy. It's all too much. We're going home. So Jesus tries to explain that this is what the Jewish scriptures had been pointing to all along, that Israel needed a king who would suffer and die as a rebel on behalf of those who actually are rebels. And then he would be vindicated by his resurrection so he could give true life to those who would receive it. But it's still not making sense. They're as confused as ever. Which leads to the scene where they sit down for a meal with Jesus. He takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them, just as he did at the Last Supper. Yeah, this is the image of his broken body, his death on the cross. And it's when they take in the broken bread, that's when their eyes are open to see Jesus, then he disappears, and the episode's over. So what does this have to do with hospitality? These disciples chose to walk together. Now, just outside of Jerusalem, a pair of Jesus' followers were leaving the city, traveling. There we go. That's weird. Thanks, Tommy. Uh, So, hospitality. Why are we talking about crucifixion and the road to Emmaus? Well, the commentator, one of them says, their words and their hearts are heavier than any supplies they carry home, Cleopas and his friend. They're carrying this home from their annual pilgrimage to Passover to their holy city, now a city of horrors. 
But these disciples chose to walk together to show hospitality to one another, and in so doing, Jesus himself draws near. These disciples, they don't recognize Jesus when he joins them on the way. I thought maybe it's because their eyes were so swollen with tears. Have you ever been there? Or their minds were so consumed with grief. But in any case, they still welcome the stranger. I don't know about you, but when I'm grieving, I don't want a stranger coming along (laughs) on a walk with me. So Cleopas and his companion, they show hospitality to this stranger, and they offer who they are and what they have in that exact moment. So Marjorie Thompson, she's one of uh, my favorite authors of a, a spiritual discipline book called Soul Feast. She says, hospitality is the act of sharing who we are as well as what we have. So these two friends don't have a a happy, clappy welcome for, for Jesus. They can't even muster small talk. Hey, how's it going? Like, it's really nice today. Do you need a drink? But they offer what they have. And what they have is their story of what transpired They have their grief. They have their hopelessness. So now what about you and me? Where can we find ourselves on the way to Emmaus? I'd like each of us to consider where we have experienced a sort of disrupting event in our lives. So these people had gone along with Jesus, all these, been following his ministry, and thought their lives were going in this direction, and all of a sudden, the road is blocked, they're grieving, and they're trying to figure out what is next. So maybe you've uh, experienced this recently or in the past. I'd like you to consider something right now that's happening. Maybe it's as traumatic as the death of a loved one or that medical diagnosis. Maybe it's the loss of a job or the starting of a new one. Maybe it's a new season as an empty nester or as a new college student. Maybe it's something more subtle where you're feeling like something needs to change but you're not sure what yet. Or maybe it's in your spiritual life where you're trying to to have that fire but you just don't, you feel stuck and you're wondering how to get unstuck. All of us can find ourselves on this road between two places where we've left the place that is known, the place where we were comfortable, we can no longer return. The ground has shifted there, and we're not yet to this new space. And we're in the in-between, we don't know what the normal looks like yet. So this difficult in-betweenness of life, it has a fancy name called liminal space. Now, liminal space is the road between the now and the not yet. Liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which literally means threshold. As Ruth Haley Barton says, this threshold is referring to that needed transition when we're moving from one place to another or from one state of being to a new state of being. 
Liminal space usually induces some sort of inner crisis. You've left the tried and true, or it has left you, and you've not yet been able to replace it with anything else. So one great and not so heavy example of a liminal space is from the, the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So how many of you have ever read this book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? A few, quite a few of you, very good. So this is from a fictional children's series called The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And I'm a little sidebar soapbox. I don't care how old you are, you need to read these books. <laughs> these are the best, one of the best books ever. I reread them every year or two. And there's a whole series of them. And the allegory that C.S. Lewis uses in these books for Jesus and our life with him it brings me to tears almost every time I read it, and, it's, and something new comes. So don't just say, I watched the movie, it was good. I'm sorry, it does not count. You have to read the book. <laughs> so anyway, back to the book. So four young children in this story are sent to live with an elderly relative in, a, in rural England during World War II. And during one rainy day game of hide-and-seek, the, the youngest among them, Lucy, finds herself a great hiding place in the spare room called, and it's a wardrobe, it's an it's a independent standing wardrobe, and she climbs in and presses herself back into the fur coats and past the mothballs and suddenly realizes she's in a wooded, snowy forest. Talk about a threshold between the now and the not yet. What is happening? And just like the disciples did not believe the women's story when they're like, Jesus isn't there, he's risen. His, Lucy's older brothers and sisters do not believe her when she says, you've got to come experience Narnia. I met a friend named Tumnus and he fed me this delicious food and it's snowy and there's the great white witch and all of these things are happening and they thought, oh geez. Come on, sis, your imagination is running away with you. This wardrobe, this in-between place between the real world and Narnia, it's a good picture of what this liminal space, the threshold space that we're talking about, this road to Emmaus. And all through scripture, we find examples of God's people on this journey, the road between the now and the not yet. There's Abraham on his way to the place that God will show you. He just picks up his bags. He's like, well, I guess I can't go back there. I, I hope I find a place to live. There's the Israelites who wander in the desert for 40 years. They don't want to go back to slavery, but they kind of do because the food was at least good there. But they don't, want to, they don't know where they're going to end up because the Canaanites are huge and they've taken over the land and they're never going to get anywhere. There's the disciples who are waiting after Jesus' ascension, waiting for the Holy Spirit, and they're like, Jesus told us to wait here until the Holy Spirit comes, but I kind of got some work to do. Shh, like, really, can I just keep myself in this house until some sort of Holy Spirit thing happens? That is the in-between space where Jesus can show up. If we demonstrate welcome to the stranger, Welcome to one another. So what about you? Where are you on the way? Where do you find yourself? Where are you on the way to? If I can end the sentence in a, pro, in, in a preposition for those of you grammar nerds. Where are you going to? <laughs> you're not yet there, but you're not here either. 
this has been my reality for the past many months. So I was discerning all the way back in fall of 2019 that something was changing. Kevin and I were talking and just something was stirring and we weren't sure what and did it have to do with the job? Did it have to do with where we lived or what? The discernment came in little pieces, excruciatingly small pieces (laughs) over the course of a year before we found ourselves interviewing for a number of different jobs over a number of different conferences across the US, not sure, we, we were no longer going to be here, but we had no idea where we were going to be. And then even once we were here, we weren't really here because we were still living in Monroe and it felt very in between, very disorienting. It's like trying to live in the moth-covered wardrobe. Like, this just doesn't feel right. <laughs> And it's a painful place to be. Whether it's actually a painful experience or or not, it's just a change. It's hard to be there. So I'm going to ask you again, where do you find yourself on this way? I actually want you to write it down or tell the person next to you, I have a 30-second timer ready, go. (laughs) Where are you on the way? So now that you've all got the specific example of where you're on the way to, (laughs) what are some practical lessons we can learn from the disciples who encountered Jesus on the way to Emmaus? What can we learn from these disciples on the way to Emmaus? So first of all, this is the first lesson, we have to choose to walk together. This is the key moment in this story. The key moment comes when the risen Jesus joins the two disciples and walks with them. So again, I'll call her my friend, Ruth Haley Barton, um, in her book, Life Together in Christ. So this is the book that um, is based off of the road to Emmaus and how we long to experience transformation in community with others and community being the most over-promised and under-delivered uh, gift of the church. Like, we, we have these big expectations of what community will do for us, and then it falls short. So how can we learn from the road to Emmaus how to live out real community? Well, she says, while it may feel that whatever par- precipitated our Emmaus road experience, so your specific one, that it is beyond your control, the circumstances are beyond your control, we have control over one thing, whether we will walk the road alone or whether we will walk it with others. Whether we will walk the road alone or walk it with others. So put yourself in the, the disciples Cleopas and his friend's sandals. Like I said earlier, how many of us want to walk with someone, a stranger? How many of us want to practice hospitality when we're grieving or struggling? I mean, most of us are struggling with something all the time. We're human. 
So when are we ever going to have space for hospitality? Oh, I'll do that when things are all just smoothed over, then I'll have people over. No. How many of us find it easy to talk about the things that we're struggling with? To talk about this in-between space, to let the emotions bubble to the surface without reservation? Not just that, but in front of another human being that you don't know. And I'm talking, I'm imagining that these disciples were sobbing at some point as they recounted, or maybe yelling out of anger. We had hoped that he, you know, where is, where is their emotion? Find yourself in that place. We like to be put together. But these two disciples are sharing who they are and what they have with one another and with Jesus. They're not just talking about, oh, well, remember how we, then Jesus walked the road to Golgotha, and then we, you know, they're not just telling the story. They're embodying the emotion behind it. They're having a real and vulnerable conversation, and Ruth Haley Barton thinks that is why Jesus drew near. He wanted to join them on the way because they are together and sharing what they had to offer with each other. It's like Jesus saying, oh man, that's a good conversation over there. I'm, I want to be a part of that. Something good is happening between those two people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into that. That's when Jesus shows up. When you lean in and share yourself with another human being. Now, practicing hospitality is hard. I think we know that, but I just want to say it. It's hard, and not because it requires some sort of culinary expertise, although that doesn't hurt, but because hospitality requires vulnerability. Hospitality is hard because it requires vulnerability. This is true hospitality. It's not about what's on your table or what your house looks like or how many people you have over. It's, it's an attitude of the heart, a willingness to offer yourself and to make space for the other to offer themselves. And that's something we don't do very well because we want to be put together. We like to be independent. We want to protect ourselves and our image We like to pull into our garage, close the door, shut the windows, turn on the air so the neighbors don't hear us yelling at our spouse or fighting with our kids. We are really good at self-protection. That's why so many people don't want to come to church. Because everybody's got it together at church. Or because they know we don't have it together, but we act like we have it together, and then they call us hypocrites. And they're not wrong. We don't have it together, and we act like we have it together. So we're hypocrites. We have to be real. When someone asks you how you are, or maybe even if they don't, say, I'm not okay. This is how I'm struggling. And the, the hard, one of the hardest parts is when you're, you're having that sort of close relationship with someone over the course of time. Maybe you found a companion on the way. And week after week, 
I know I felt this with my friends, whoops, with my friends Mark and Rachel and Kevin as we gathered week after week to share our lives, how is it with your soul? And I kept saying the same thing over and over and over again every week. It was like, am I ever going to be past this? Am I ever going to be okay? Are you guys going to be super annoyed and just want me to stop talking? Because it's embarrassing to admit that we're still struggling with that, that we're still having a hard time. But as Molly Marshall writes, the hospitality of the traveling companions becomes the doorway to grace. The hospitality of the traveling companions becomes the doorway to grace. Why, she goes on, actions more than words, welcome more than self-protection, provides the space where others might fearlessly enter and find themselves at home. That's it. That's the heart of hospitality. This whole, it's the heart of this whole series that we're doing here at Ipsy Free. To be a people who extend a welcome to others by letting down our guard. When we have hearts of hospitality, others feel safe to enter and find themselves at home. It's an attitude that you can have with someone, the stranger at the store, or the male person on your front porch, or your neighbor, or your spouse. It's an, it's a, it's an attitude that says, this is who I really am. This is what I have to offer you. And they feel safe. If you're the kind of person who says, who has people tell them, I don't know why I'm telling you this, then you're practicing hospitality. I don't know. I just told you 20 minutes of my story, and I've never even met you before. That's a good thing. That's demonstrating hospitality of the heart. Now, the second lesson, the first being choose to walk together. The second that we learn from the disciples is this. Choose to open yourself to others in your grief. This is a really specific version of the first one. Choose to open yourself to others in your grief. That's really heavy. But this is the kind of thing that opens us to the presence of Jesus. It's the doorway to grace. It's when Jesus leans in because he says, they're ready for my presence. They've created space for me. And it's opened us to being transformed together. So I want to share an example of this from my own life. This is... uh, back in April of 2018. And I just had another session, a monthly session with my spiritual director. Spiritual direction is another sermon for another day. Uh, If you ever want to talk about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, But Sister Carol was a Catholic nun at the IHM in Monroe. And the first time I sat down across from her, it was like she could see into my soul. She'd created space for me. And her presence was so disarming. It was so welcoming. And see, with me, I have a hard time not being, I'm very honest with people. The trouble is people see me as very put together and very okay, and it's hard for me to convince people that I'm not okay. <laughs> but she, was, she welcomed that. She welcomed that. So we had been meeting monthly for the past few years, and she'd become like a spiritual grandmother to me. 
So here's a picture of her. Her love extended beyond just these sessions. She came to my house when Junia was born and held a crying baby. And this was Father Bob, Kevin's spiritual director, and they both came to, to see us. And this, this first quote, all of us are on our own Emmaus Road, somewhere between the now and the not yet. So on this particular day, I had spent my time walking miles around Monroe with my dear friend Rachel. So this next picture, this is our three girls back in 2019. And Rachel and I had walked literally like seven miles with the girls that day. And remembering, we have control over one thing, whether we walk it alone or choose to walk it together. So it was nearing evening, and we returned home. We were probably kind of grumpy by this point and hot and hungry. And so I started feeding my kids. I left my phone at home all day. It was my day off. I left it at home. Kevin was at Lazy Boy. He wasn't allowed to use his phone. And when I checked my phone, I had a missed call from Kevin, and he said, call me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, who died? We're pastors at the Monroe Church. Someone, something's happened. Never in a million years did I expect to pick up the phone and for him to say, Mel, Sister Carol died. (laughs) I was, I choked on my tears and literally fell to the ground. The girls are sitting there at the table like, Mommy, what's wrong? And I could not stop crying. I collapsed onto the floor. What? I was just with her. She's perfectly fine. She had gone to sleep to take a nap and never woke up. So I'm in the middle of getting dinner for the baby Junia and for three-year-old Kirsten, and I did not know how to go on. I'd never experienced a loss like that sudden and that deep during a time in my life where I didn't have the love of a person like this. She was it. And in the next moment, I called Rachel and I said, Sister Carol died. I didn't want to call anybody. I wanted to be alone, but I couldn't do it alone. And so Rachel packed up Kezia, got in the car, and said, I'm coming. And she walked in the house. She gave me a hug, and then she gave the girls a bath, and she got them ready for bed. And I just sat on my bed and cried and cried. And I didn't have to call her, and she didn't have to come but we chose to walk the road together. And over the next few weeks, every week, I was like, I'm still so sad. And it felt like, when am I going to be over this? If you've lost someone, you're like, you feel like everyone's waiting for you to be okay. It's okay to not be okay. So what about you? Where are you on the way? Where are you on the way? Maybe you didn't know at first when I asked that question at the beginning, but maybe you know now. Oh, that's where I am in the story. That's where I find myself on the road to Emmaus. So are you traveling alone? Have you chosen to walk with others? Walking this life with companions seems crucial because it is. So who are your people? Who do you call when you're having a bad day? Who sits with your kids when you need somebody because you can't even get out of bed? Who 
comes to sit with you when you're embarrassed that you're still dealing with the grief that you should have been over, should have been over already. This is why at Ipsy Free we believe so strongly in small groups. Not because of what you're going to learn, but because of what you're going to experience in community with others. And it's not going to be like what you expect it to be like. It's going to be different. It's probably going to have some awkward moments. But if you stick with it, it'll be good for the long haul. And you will be transformed. It's about walking together. You have to have people to walk with you. So what is Jesus inviting you to do today? I can give you some next steps. I, I mean, I could tell you, call someone after church today and tell them, Open yourself to others in your grief today. Choose to be a part of the small group when you'd rather just go it alone. You're, you're an introvert. You have too much to do. You're fine by yourself. But Jesus' invitation is what matters most. So maybe it's nothing I said, not, no song we sang. Maybe there's something that Jesus has been inviting you to do, stirring in your heart today. Do you need to confess? Do you need to confess your pride at dealing with it alone? Confess your unwillingness to open to others? So I'm going to ask Tim now to come and play in the background for a few moments, and I want to make space for you to respond. I want you to make space for Jesus to show you what you need to do next. And not just what you need to think about, but what you need to do. So the altar is open, friends. I'm going to invite Jesus into this space. Take a few minutes to sit with him as you respond to this idea of being on the road between the now and the not yet, of walking with others. Jesus, I pray courage for those who know they need to come and confess, for those who need to come and surrender their independence to you, for those who need to tell someone, for those who need to be a part of a group. Give us courage, Jesus. stirring in our hearts. Move us.
God, you're a companion on the way. You've created us to be in community with others. So God, we confess this morning that we prefer our independence. We confess this morning that we don't like to cry in front of people. We confess this morning that we've never been in a small group or that we've written them off. We confess this morning that we come to church like we've got it all together. But you know we don't. Oh God, make us a church where we bring our fullest selves where we share ourselves with one another and make space for the other to do the same. Come, Holy Spirit, come and move in us. May we be made whole and healed in the presence of one another. In Jesus' name, amen.